Uh, we've been going through in my class uh, the biblical covenants. Now, when you hear about covenants and you start reading books and start looking there, you're going to come across things that they're what are called theological covenants. Uh, and that deals with a, a group, uh, covenant theologians. We are not, we don't hold to that position theologically. Uh, they hold to these things called like the covenants of works and the covenant of grace. And as you look through the scriptures, you don't, you don't find that in scripture. It's more of a theological outworking. What we are looking at are the covenants that are clearly laid out in the Bible, often referred to as biblical covenants. And as we look through the covenants the Bible is laying out, it, it moves the story of the, of the scriptures along. It's not, scriptures are not just these big chunks of just a book and a chapter, and they're just meant to be just this book and chapter, and it doesn't go anywhere. God has uniquely and in a miraculous way progressively revealed history and revealed his plan through history uh, in the scriptures. And so as he's moving it, the scriptures along, oftentimes he's using these biblical covenants to help people learn new things about God. He's revealing new aspects about him, and it just uh, continues to, to go forward. Now this morning we're going we're gonna to do something different. We're going to use a new kind of PowerPoint uh, on the screens. It's, uh, it's called the PowerPoint of your mind, Okay. So you're actually just going to have to like imagine with your mind rather than have pictures up on the screen. Uh, and uh, that's, that's where we're going to go this morning. But I, there's part, of, part of the reason is I, w- I did my roof this week, so I didn't, I didn't have time to finish my PowerPoint. I'll just admit it openly. You can fire me if you want. I'm sorry. Uh, or and then, the other reason is, too, there's a quote I have at the top of your notes. Look there. It says, The greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance but the illusion of knowledge. And it's actually, the, the, the quote often is referred, uh, credited to Stephen Hawking, who I don't ascribe to anything that he promotes. Uh, but this individual is actually the first individual who said it. And I, there's something about the illusion of knowledge. In fact, my, my kids and I, we love watching on National Geographic a show called Brain Games. And it talks about how your brain works and how you see things. And they have an entire episode on what they call the illusion of knowledge. And at one point, they actually have all these college students draw a bicycle. And they say, all right, we want you to draw. But everybody knows what a bicycle looks like. Everybody knows how it is. And so all these college students draw, draw this bicycle out. And then what they did was they took all, their, all these students in this class. They took their drawings and they brought it to the shop class. And they had the shop class build these bicycles just like they had drawn them. And not a one of them worked because they had the steering, uh, the, the handlebars in the wrong spot. They had the seat in a spot that wasn't balanced. But everybody knows what a bicycle looks like or thinks they know how it works and knows how to draw it. But this, the illusion of knowledge often plays into that. And it's a, it was a very interesting episode just on how much we think we know. And as I'm watching all the time, I'm watching, I'm like, oh, that would be a great illustration for this in the Bible and this in the Bible. I think we often come to the story of Exodus with a great illusion of knowledge. I, I do. I'm guilty of it. Maybe you're not. But here, try, try this for a second. Do the, I have two questions there. Do the one on the right first. Can you name all the Ten Commandments? All right? You can try with your neighbor if you want. You can start trying to name them all. We all know the Ten Commandments, right? Can you name them all off? I know the Ten Commandments. Don't, you know, I know what they are. I know, you know... Uh, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, no graven image, uh, uh, don't bear false witness, yeah, don't lie. And do you ever, you ever do that? You find yourself like, yeah, I know these things. But you're like, do I, do I, can, I, can I state them? Well, that's, that's one part of it. But what about this question? How does Israel get the Ten Commandments? Okay, what, what happens? Tell, tell me, somebody start shouting out what happened. Where, where do they get the Ten Commandments at? Okay, Mount Sinai, right? Okay, good. All right, and how does, that, how does that all go down? What happens? Okay, so Moses, right? Moses goes up the mountain, right? And what happens? He gets, he gets the, right. And where, where are they written? On stone. And then when he writes them on stone, what happens? He, he comes down and breaks them, right? You're all wrong. That's what happened with Charlton Heston. That is not what happens in the scriptures. At all. And I'm like, I'm reading through, I'm like, 
whoa, whoa, wait a second, Art, you know, what have you taught these junior church kids? Uh, the, the, the scriptures actually unfold, because we think, okay, he gets them, he comes down, and right away the golden calf is happening, right? The Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20. The golden calf happens in Exodus chapter 32. There's all this stuff in the middle that happens, and some of it is just the, the law being given. But it's interesting how the story unfolds. So before we just jump to the conclusions of, okay, what's the Mosaic Covenant? What's the law and what's it all about? Let's, let's back up a little bit and let's, let's lay out how, how some of this is given. Okay, so some of this will be review because we know it. But let's, let's back up and tell the story, check out the story of what, why Moses, why is this all going on? And how does it fit into the, the big pro, progressive revelation of Scripture? Okay, now d- don't worry. Like some of the things you stated are not wrong. I'm not like calling you blasphemers or, you know, heretics. But the, the order in which and how, how everything happens, let's, let's unfold it. By the time we end with Revel, or Genesis, where we ended last week with the Abrahamic covenant, you end up with Joseph and Joseph, uh, the children of Israel, they end up in... Uh, Egypt, through the God providentially working through Joseph and doing a, a great and miraculous thing by allowing him to be taken captive. He ends up down there, and as he's there, Exodus 1 verse 7 talks about they get to the point where all the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now we're talking the land of Egypt was filled with all of these Hebrews. Now, it's interesting that the wording that he uses there, Moses uses, it reflects back on some of the Abrahamic covenant, that you're going to, be, you're going to multiply, you're going to be fruitful, that there's going to be a great abundance of you, you're going to be great and mighty. And we see that coming to fruition right away at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So you get there, Exodus 1-7, that this has happened, and, and what has happened is over the next 400 years, Abraham's descendants are going to become enslaved. They're going to be mistreated. We know that there's a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And it gets to this point where these, the children of Israel, they become, they become a, a pestilence, so to speak, in the mind of Pharaoh. He realizes that they are so great and they are mighty and they're going to have the ability to overthrow us. So we've got to do something. And we get to chapter one where, all right, let's start killing the male children. Let's start doing that. And we're going to control and we're going to put them under pressure. And the children of Israel are beginning to, to feel that. In chapter two, you end up with Moses being born and the, the birth, of, birth of this one. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that Moses is, is from the, the tribe of Levi. I never picture, picked, picked that up, but it talks about that he's from the, uh, the tribe of Levi, which later on, when you get to the, who are, who's the group that stands up with Moses to, to kill the 3,000 Israelites who are worshiping the golden calf, it's the tribe of Levi. It's just his, his brothers, his, you know, his family, they came to, they came to his side uh, to help with that. Now, you, we know the story of Moses. He's put in by faith. His mother puts him into the river. By, by God's providence, he's drawn out of the river. Uh, and when he's drawn out of the river, he is uh, taken into Pharaoh's house. And we know that. Now, all of this is, this slavery is, is reflecting back. Remember, God, when God talked to Abraham in the Abrahamic prom- covenant, he told him, Genesis 15, uh, 13 and 14, it says, God spoke to Abraham, or Abram at the time, know of a surety that your seed will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and, he, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. So God has prophetically told Abraham, your children are going to be slaves in another nation. And so we see that coming to fruition. And there, we should not be surprised, though, that, yes, the children of Israel are enslaved. God has said that was going to happen. But he also says that he is going to miraculously redeem them. The next verse in chapter 15 of Genesis, it says, And also the nation whom they serve will I judge. And afterwards, they shall come out with great substance. God is using this, this time in Egypt to prepare his people to be the nation that he wants them to be, to provide them with the great riches. We know when they come out of Egypt, what are they, what are, they've basically ransacked Egypt. E- Egypt's giving them gold, giving them cattle, giving them everything, just get out of here. And they, they leave with this great substance just as God had, had proclaimed. 
And I, I love as you watch through the stories of the Old Testament and through the, the, the covenants that God makes with his people. And when you see them come, once again, it highlights he's the covenant-keeping God. He's the God who is true and faithful and just. And when he makes a promise, he keeps those promises. We, we don't have to sit and wonder, does God really keep his promises? He is that faithful, loving, and kind, kind God. So, so we find ourselves moving the story. And when we look at the book of Exodus... Moses, Moses is going to be drawn out. He's going to be put in Pharaoh's house. As he's put in Pharaoh's house, he's going to grow up. But we know it doesn't even take long. I mean, the movie, you know, Prince of Egypt takes this long time when Moses is there in Egypt. But it's really a short time. I mean, this, the story is just being set up. Because by the time you get to, to the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and following, Moses has killed the Egyptian and he is fleeing out of the wilderness. So he was, he was once the target of Pharaoh because he was this little child. Now he becomes like this precious grandson to Pharaoh. Now he's killed an Egyptian. He's got a target on his back again, and he's going to be sent away. And he's going to come back, and he's definitely going to have a big bullseye on him from Pharaoh when he comes back to Egypt because he's trying to take all of these slaves away from, away from Pharaoh. If you were going to take the book of Exodus and just give a quick synopsis, because as we as we understand the Mosaic Covenant, the law, we want to understand the context in which it's couched in. We don't just want to go, okay, there's the law, it's not for us, we don't care, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace, and we don't need any of this. That's not true. Scripture is given by inspiration, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that we may be perfect and truly furnished. So it's our responsibility to understand the law, to understand the principles of the law, to understand which truths of the law are actually applicable to us today and which which are not but we don't just throw the entire law and all of the the book of exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy out because that's just for israel and not for us so we we want to understand the context in which it is if you look at chapters 1 through 18 of the book of exodus it's basically this god delivers his people from egyptian bondage through moses moses is going to be the redeemer he is going to be the one. Now, ultimately, the Redeemer is God. We know that. Moses is just the, the go-between. He is the one there. When you, when you get to chapters 19 to 31, you're going to find that God speaks through Moses to his people in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Which is it's interesting, because when we think of the book of Exodus, we think basically, all right, get them out of Egypt. There's a little bit of the law, and then we jump to numbers in the wilderness wanderings and the grumblings and the complainings. But there's a lot of chapters in the book, the book of Exodus here. And then the last half, chapter 32 to 30 or 40, God dwells with his people in the tabernacle built under the instruction of Moses. There is no doubt that through the book of Exodus, the key central figure is Moses. I mean, God's always, God is always the, the central figure, but Moses is the one. So God dwells now with his people uh, in the tabernacle uh, built under the instruction of Moses. When you're reading books in the Old Testament, no matter what it is, any story, any narrative is the, is the technical term, but a story, you want to look at the beginning and the end, especially when a story transcends an entire book. The difference between what is it, what was it like at the beginning and what was it like at the end? Think about, think about the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus for, for a moment. It opens with God's people in servitude to Egypt. So they are slaves in Egypt. It ends with them in servitude to God. They are, they are covenanting with God that they are going to follow the law. They are saying, you will we serve, you will be our God, and we will be your people. So it starts with them in servitude to Egypt, but it ends with them in servitude to God. So what is it in the middle that brings them to that point? That's what we want to find out. That's where we get into the, the nitty-gritty, into, into that law. You start them with building, they're building cities to a tyrant. And by the end of the book, they're building a tabernacle for the presence of God. So, so yes, they're building and, and slaves there. Now in service to God, they're, they're serving him and they're building him this, this new, uh, not permanent building. We know that it's a, a tent, that it's a tabernacle. I love one of my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the, in the scriptures is in John, John chapter 1, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
the word dwelt is, is literally the idea of he tabernacled among us. That the, the picture of the presence of God that he talks about in Exodus, where, where God is going to come down and rest through the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle, God uses that same beautiful illustration that says that God left the thrones of heaven, that Jesus Christ left, and he dwelt among men. He tabernacled here. What, the tabernacle was not permanent. It was, it was a, a temporary solution. Same thing with Christ. He was not here permanently. There was going to be something great where he was going to die on the cross and be taken back up. But it's just this beautiful verse with great Old Testament pictures and, and wonder. You, you, start with, you start with the people, the, the children of Israel, being drowned in a river in the book of Exodus. By the end of the book of Exodus, it actually happens in the middle. But who's drowned at the, by the end of the book? It's, it's Pharaoh's army. Yeah, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the bottom of the Red Sea. And, and Israel is rejoicing, and they're freed from that bondage uh, that, that happened. You find them at the beginning. They're clinging to the covenant of Abraham. They know they are Abraham's children. They're not going to, to violate that. They highlighted it a couple different times in the book that we are, we are the God, you know, the children of, of Abraham. And God even reconciles that uh, when you get to uh, chapter 3 and verse 6 when he talks to Moses in the burning bush. And, and what, does he, what does he come out and say? He, he looks at him and he says, Moreover, he said, I am God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. But God draws back to that, that covenant picture. This is, this is who I am. But you have him clinging to the Abrahamic covenant. And by the end of the book of Exodus, they're going to be entering into this personal covenant as a nation with God. We call it the law, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, but they're going to be entering into that. And so as you see the, the two ends, the stark change, the book of Exodus, the whole middle section is going to help us understand how did they get from here to there? Just like Genesis helped the children of Israel understand how do we get from creation to bondage in Egypt? That's the story of the book of Genesis. How did you go from a garden to, to, being, to being slaves? The book of Exodus starts, how did you go from being slaves to being a free people getting ready to enter into the promised land? The central character of this book, no doubt, is Moses, who plays a prominent role in God's plan. To better understand the covenant which God is going to make through Israel, through the great mediator Moses, which Hebrews is going to talk about how great Moses was, but there is one greater, which we'll talk in my class in a couple weeks here, how Hebrews just continually is going to go back to this covenant and look and say, the one greater than the law, the one greater than, the, than Moses, the one greater than the, the blood of the sacrifice of blood and bulls and goats. It's all pointing to the greater one, Jesus Christ. And it, it looks back, but it all, all ties in. And understanding this covenant of Moses helps us to understand even more how greater God is. And Hebrews continually ties us, ties us back into that. Let's just get a little bit more of a survey of Moses so we can come right into the, the story and, and answer the question that I threw out to you and told you we were all wrong so we can get there and maybe I'll be wrong. But uh, Moses, uh, as a baby, I mentioned, was a target of Pharaoh. Through his father, mother's faith, Moses was providentially rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses becomes Pharaoh's grandson, but after killing an Egyptian, siding with the Hebrew, he returns to being a target of Pharaoh. That's chapters 1 and 2. By the time of chapters 3 and 4, you have Moses fleeing for his life, Moses then finds himself as a shepherd of Jethro's flock. During this time, Jehovah, he is going to, and it's the first time he's going to use that term, I am, reveals himself to Moses in order to commission Moses as the rescuer of the Hebrews. So says, Moses, you're going to be this one. And we know Moses, chapter 3, chapter 4, Moses is going to put up all of his excuses and blockades why he can't serve. I don't talk well. I stutter. I, I'm not good in front of people. I don't, you know, I'm not a leader. And all these excuses that he makes, but God says, you are the one. And he, he equips Moses to be able to do the ministry that God had for him. He's going to give him the, the, the ability to put his hand in and come out with leprosy, to throw his staff on the ground and watch it turn into a snake. He's going to say, I'm going to give you Aaron to help you with, with uh, the, the ministry I have for you, to be your mouthpiece. And it's interesting, you know, I, I believe very clearly that even in our age now, as God 
works excuse me, in unique ways to call us into certain ministries and opportunities. It might be teaching, it might be serving, it might be helping in different areas. God equips us and helps us to be able to do that in those moments, just like he does, does with Moses. Now, as Moses returns, returns to Egypt, let's go to chapter 6 of, of Exodus. Moses is going to return to Egypt. Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. We know that he's going to refuse to allow the God's children to go to Israel and or go out of Egypt and to worship. And as he hardens his heart and God just puts the pressure on greater, Moses is uh, uh, the plagues are going to bring the plagues. There's going to be the Passover. All of this is going to be used to deliver the children out of out of Egypt and into the Exodus. And that's going to happen from chapters 5 to 13. There's a good section given to it. Interesting studies done on the plagues and watching how the, each of the plagues corresponded with different Egyptian gods directly. And once again, showing that God is the supreme God. The, the God that Egypt was worshipped or the gods were not sufficient. They were inadequate. They, they did not have the ability to, to do what God himself was going to do. Continually showing power over them. But what's interesting is when you get to chapter 5, if you remember the people of Israel, they, they push back a little bit against Moses. Why? Because Pharaoh had, you know, Moses went to him. Pharaoh says, all right, we're going to make this even worse. We're going to pull the straw out of the bricks. You're going to have to make us all the bricks. Keep your quote up. Make sure it's done, but we're going to make it more difficult. And the children of Israel push back a little bit. Moses gets a little bit nervous. But as you get to chapter 6, God is going to make a promise of deliverance. He's going to begin to make some promises and statements very clearly. And uh, as we talked in my class, when God says, I will, pay attention. Especially when he's making these promises to the patriarchs and to these individuals. But look how he, uh, he gets down. You get down to chapter 6, verse 5. Well, verse 4, he says, And appeared to Abraham, unto Isaac and Jacob, by the name of the Almighty, but by the name of Jehovah. He didn't, he, he didn't use El Shaddai. He used, he used Yahweh uh, here. And he, he says, I am, this is who I am. I am God. And I have established my covenant with them. So he refers back again to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they, they were strangers. And I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel, who the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. So I, I just listed out a bunch of, look at what God has said he has done or will do. He says, I have remembered my covenant, verse 4, that I, that I made with them. Wherefore, say to the children of Israel, based on the fact that I have made a covenant with their grandparents, based on the fact that I keep my covenant, based on the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is not conditioned upon anything the people were doing, but conditioned upon who God was, he says, I've remembered them. I've remembered what I told Abraham that I was going to do. It says, I've heard them, so tell the children of Israel this, Moses. I am Jehovah. I am the Lord. And here's what I will do. I will bring you out from your burdens. He makes this promise, this claim. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I will bring you out. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you. So he says, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to take you out of the bondage. I'm going to buy you back. The redeeming, that slave trading picture where someone buys somebody off of the block. They, they make them theirs. God redeems them out. He's going to redeem them to make them a free people, but a free people who are going to be loyal to him. He's going to work in a great way. He says, I will take you for, for me to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the, unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a heritage. So he said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. The land of, of promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to bring you back into it. He's fulfilling the Genesis 15. Uh, pro uh, prophecy that he gave to Abraham. But he's also fulfilling part of the covenant to Abraham and saying, I will bring your people back into my land. So as he's doing this, he's making these promises 
the beginning of which is going to lay out a covenant that God is going to make with his people. He is going to do something miraculous. He is going to intervene to provide and protect for the Jewish people, which is very important in understanding how covenants work. Covenants work because of a a higher authority and, and somebody who is in a lesser position. Or somebody who has something and they, they work together to have loyalty and faithfulness to one another. Again, it is not a contract. It is not two equals come and saying, all right, let's just sign off. You do this, I'll do this. And if it doesn't work out, I'll, you know, so be it. No, the covenant was deeper and richer. Another interesting note is found in, found in this section. If you go to chapter 12, and you again, I'm not reading through all of, you can go through a lot of the different locusts and plagues and all those different things. But when you get to the Passover, I think, I think there's a really important aspect to remember in the whole salvation history of humanity. Verse, verse 13, it says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be unto you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. He's talking to the Jews. For them to be nationally, it was not enough for them to simply be Jewish or in the covenant. They were. They, these, these Jewish individuals living in Egypt were still abiding. They still understood their promises, the covenant with Abraham. They were still practicing the rite of circumcision historically. So all of this is happening. They're in the covenant but what does God say? It's not enough. If you do not want to experience the death of the firstborn, here's what you must do. There must be blood shed. There must be blood placed upon the doorpost. There must be an atoning that takes place with that, that, uh, that lamb. And just a beautiful picture. It doesn't matter if you're in a family of believers. It doesn't matter if you're a person is Jewish by faith or they grow up in a, in a religion or a denomination that says as long as you're in the covenant family or as long as you are in a religious, certain religious organization, you're safe and okay. If there's going to be anybody who's okay, it's Jewish people who are in the covenant with Abraham. And yet God says, that's not enough. You need to put the blood. You need to personally follow through on what I am telling you by faith, slaughter, prepare, go through the rite of Passover and and make that happen. And all of that is going to keep setting up uh, Moses and the story, bringing us to the giving of the law. He, the Passover happens, the death angel comes in, Pharaoh says, take a hike, get out of here. We don't want you, please leave us. We know the story. They're, they're going to move their way out. They're going to start working their way into the wilderness and as they're working their way, we know that as they're, as they're moving out toward the Red Sea initially, Pharaoh's going to chase them. God's going to destroy Pharaoh's army. There's going to be rejoicing uh, by Moses. Chapter, I believe, 15 uh, gives some of the rejoicing of Moses. He's going to lead them in worship. And then after leading them in worship, he's going to lead them into the wilderness. And we see that following. And we know the stories. We know this is just the beginning here in Exodus 16, 17, 18 where the children of Israel are not content. They want to go back to Egypt. It's not even been gone for a long time. They're ready to to hightail it back. They're going to grumble. They're going to complain. And yet, in the wilderness, what does God do? He provides for them water. He provides for them manna. He provides for them quail. He's going to protect them when the Amalekites come against them. And all of this is setting setting something up. It's setting up the the giving of this covenant. And I'll show you in in just a second here. God, just real quickly, the wilderness wanderings, you get into the book of Numbers and we see the expanse of the grumbling and the complaining and the murmurings that are, that are happening here. But in the book of Exodus, Moses just quickly looks and look, he hit, our, he hit our main provisions. He gave us water. He gave us food. He gives us protection. When the Amalekites come against, he says, Joshua, go take, your, take the people. Aaron and her and I are going to go up. And as long as my hands are up, we're going we're gonna to be victorious and, and Aaron and her are propping up the hands and, and all of that's going to happen. The Amalekites are going to be defeated, but that's a, it's a victory by God. It's not because of the great military might of the people who just came out of servitude. It's because God worked in an, in an amazing way to protect. So now you get to, you find yourself all the way fast forward. We're in chapter 19 of Exodus. 
All of that, we, I'm looking across the crowds, and, and you're, you're well aware of that story, how we get to, we get to the, the giving of the, the law. So we get, to, we get to chapter 19, and we find, we find the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb, uh, but, but they're, they're there at the base of uh, Mount Sinai. And they find themselves there where God and Moses, they're now going to convene. And it's going to be during this time that God is going to enter into this covenant. Now, the covenant is called what? what who does he enter into the covenant with? It's Israel, really. But we call it the Mosaic Covenant. It's because Moses is, again, the central figure. Uh, but it's, it's called that, but he's entering into it with Moses and the people. It's really interesting what, what God is going to do here in a second. Just to show that this is not a covenant between he and Moses, and then the people just need to obey Moses. This is a covenant between all of the people and God. This is a covenant with the, the nation that happens. Now, if you're going to, if you read books, you read different things, everybody, anybody who wants to write a book, everybody who wants a new and novel approach and wants to write something on a different slant. So what is this covenant called? You can come across all of these different titles, the Mosaic covenant. You'll hear it called the Sinaitic covenant. I always laugh at that one because it just sounds like there's a sinus issue going on, but the Sinaitic covenant, you'll hear it called the law covenant. You'll hear it called the Israeli covenant. It's called the Old Covenant in the New Testament. It has multiple names, but it's all dealing with the same covenant. That same, that same law given to Moses and the children of Israel for them to abide so that they can show the, the, the ultimate goal of the law initially was for them to be able to live in a way that they could show other people what it was like to live as a son of God how they were supposed to treat one another, how they were supposed to come to worship, how they were supposed to interact with God, how they were supposed to rest. All these different dynamics was ultimately Israel's responsibility to be reflecting to the other nations what God, what a relationship with God looked like. And so, so he lays, he's going to lay that out through the law. And my class will deal with that in a couple of weeks. But some of you won't get that. That's okay. You can read through and it's, it's good stuff. And if you have any questions about books, I'll give you some books you can read. But what, what's interesting here is when you get to the end of 19, look, look at what happens here. And I don't have this in your notes. This is going to be, be extra. But watch, watch the going up and coming. Remember, you're at a mountain, right? So, so you're, at, you're at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, verse 3. Moses went up to God and the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell them, and he's going to tell them what to, that he's brought them out on weagles, ing, weagles ings. Yeah, the eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if they will obey uh, my voice and keep my covenant, then will they be a peculiar treasure to me above all the people for all the earth is mine and they shall be unto the kingdom of priests and a holy nation uh, to the other people. These are the words that I spoke to the children. And so Moses came and called the elders. So now what has Moses done? He's come back down out of the mountain. He's going to tell them uh, to do this. And all the people, they're going to answer verse 8. All right, great. This is good. We're going to do what God tells us to do. They're making this initial agreement with God and with Moses saying, yes, we're, we're going to do that. Verse, verse number 8. Moses returned the words of the Lord, the words of the people to the Lord. So he goes back up the mountain. And he's going to tell, he's going to tell uh, God what the people have said. And the Lord's going to say to Moses, all right, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have this on the third day. I want you to, to sanctify yourselves, clean yourselves up, be prepared because we're going to, we're going to have a big meeting. We're going to have a, uh, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there's going to be this ceremony. There's going to be this moment. We're going to make, a, we're going to make an agreement. We're going to make a covenant, as he said in, in the previous verses, between each other. So he says, I want you to go down. So verse 11, uh, he says, be ready on the third day for the third day. Who's going to come down? The Lord's going to come down. It's not going to be Moses coming down the mountain. It's not going to be Moses going up. It's going to be the Lord coming down. So verse 14, Moses goes down the mountain again. He's going to talk to the children of Israel and he's going to explain what God has just told him. You get to verse 18 and it says, and Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke. 
because the Lord descended upon it in fire and smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly and with the voice of the trumpet sounded loud and waxed louder and louder Moses spake and God answered him by a voice and the Lord came down on the mount on Mount Sinai on top of the mount and the Lord calls Moses to the top of the mountain so now you have Moses going back up the mountain as he's up there he's going to talk with God And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the the priests also, which come near to God, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. He's talking about how holy he is, how sanctified this is to be. Don't let them come up. Nobody's coming up, Moses. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come onto the mountain. It's interesting how many times God has to say this. You think he probably understands how stiff-necked these people are? It's, like, it's almost like he's got to beat it through Moses. Keep telling him, don't come on the mountain. Don't come on the mountain. Uh, he says, set the bounds on the mountain. Sanctify it. Set it apart. Make it holy. And the Lord said unto him, verse 24, Away, get thee down. You shall come up again, is the idea. You and Aaron with you. But don't let the priests and the people break through and come upon uh, the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down, where does he go? Unto the people, and he spoke to them. So now, God, where, where is Moses? Is Moses on the mountain, or is he down with the people? He's down with the people. As he's down with the people, what happens? Chapter 20. What's given in chapter 20? Ten Commandments. How are they given? And God spoke all these words, saying... He is, he is, there is this thundering voice. The people hear the voice. This is not Moses getting it on the, ta- on the tablets. Tablets don't come till later in the book. The people, there is a covenant being made between God coming down on the mountain and telling his people, this is what I have for you. This, I do not want you. You will have no other gods before me. You will have none of this. And he, he goes down and he's going to share all of this, all of these with him. I am the Lord, which brought you out. He's going to start by reflecting back on what he's done. And after he does that, he's going to lay out, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take graven image. You shall not bow yourselves down to them. You're not going to take the name of the Lord in vain. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And he goes on, talks about the Sabbath. And then honor your father and mother. Verse 12, shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. He goes right through. And it's interesting, the Hebrews call it, they don't call it the Ten Commandments. They they call it the Ten Words because they just basically have uh, no adultery, no killing, no, it's just these short words that, that were written down. And so you now have, you now have God initiating a covenant with his people. It's just like, remember back to Genesis 12, when God initially gives the covenant to Abraham, it's three verses. And then through time, he continues to expand and expand, gives more of the stipulations, helps them understand more of what it is. The same thing's happening here. He's going to give the synopsis in chapters 20 and following. And then later on, we get to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You're going to get some of the more extensive dynamics of the, the law and how it, how it works. It's interesting to me when you get to verse 18. Uh, you have now the people. What's the response of the people? Look at look, all the people saw the thunder, the lightning, and the noise, and the trumpets. And they, the, when the people saw it, they removed it and stood afar off. There's, there's a terror. When you come into the presence of the Lord throughout Scripture, there's a terror. And there's a holy terror, a holy... Like they're stepping back and realizing they're not to be close. So how are they going to approach God then? They need a what? They need a mediator. And who becomes the mediator? It's Moses. He uses this picture. Now, now they say to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But don't let God speak with us. We, we can't do, we don't want that. That was intense. We just got, we just got 17 verses directly from God. That was, you, Moses, you be the guy. You go up and down and come back and whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Which is hilarious because we know they don't do that. But they, they follow through and Moses becomes the mediator. Again, 
becoming that beautiful picture Hebrews is going to talk about. The one who is the great mediator, the one who is far better than Moses, being Jesus Christ, our high priest, our advocate, the one who goes on our, our behalf. Because how do we enter, how do we go before a holy and just God? We don't. We only go through our mediator. For there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's, that's our mediator. The beautiful picture, even demonstrated back here. God's grace is demonstrated, but they realized they needed somebody to, to go between. Now, looking at the covenant initially, there's, there's this, uh, the covenants of the ancient Near East. It's, it's interesting to watch how the people followed some of their, the national traditions or the traditions of the people. One of the major covenants, and I mentioned it a few weeks back when I taught way back at the beginning of the summer, called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. It's a big technical term. It basically means a treaty between a high, a high king and the servants. It's, it's, in this treaty, a great king enacts a covenant with his servants, promising to protect and to guard them. So the, the great king is going to make a covenant, says, I will protect, I will provide, I will guard, I will take care of you. But your responsibility, servants, is that you're obligated to serve the king by abiding in the stipulations that are laid out in the covenant. So as the king would set up a covenant and says, this is, you want my protection and my provision. I want to provide for you. I want to be your king. I want to be, in this case, your lord. You want that. You want the blessings. Well, here are the covenants. Here's the law. Here's the stipulations that you're going to follow. And it's interesting that when you watch the Mosaic law given, how, how directly, there's, there's five main points to this idea of the, the suzerain vassal treaty. The first one is often that the sovereign will identify himself. He says, here I am, I am the king. Exodus chapter 3, talking from a bush. Moses, I am, I am Jehovah. I, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He identifies himself. Chapter 20, verse 2. What is he? He starts off from the mountain above to the people below. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He says, this is who I am. And then the covenant, whenever this, this type of treaty is made, there'll be the basis. The basis of the covenant. It'll be stated. Why is this king? What has this king done to earn the loyalty of these people. What has he done to provide for them, to protect them? Traditionally, it's based on deliverance of the people group. The, you know, King Arthur comes riding in. He saves all the people around Camelot and all the people go, yes, you've delivered us. We'll be, we'll be loyal to you. That's just a small little picture. Look at, look at the bigger picture. Has this group of people sitting at the base of Mount Sinai just been delivered? Absolutely. In a miraculous and amazing way. Have they been provided for in walking in their wilderness? They were given water and food and manna and quail. Have they been protected already by the Amalekites attacking? God intervenes and protects. Is there a basis and a foundation for God to look and say, I have delivered you. And I have not just delivered you to to rot in the wilderness. I have delivered you to provide and to protect and to care for you. And so you see that in Exodus chapter 6, in Exodus 1 through 19, verse 2 again, he lays it out. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of your bondage. Then the law goes through and gives you the stipulations. In, in, a, in a suzerain vassal treaty, it gives you these stipulations, these obligations that you're to follow. And so the ancient Near East culture, they would look and say, okay, well, what does the king want us to do? We get, that, we get that right away here with the 10 words or the 10 commands that are given by God. And they're going to sum up a lot, of, a lot of the law, but there's going to be more that's going to be given. But you can, you can flesh, flesh that all out. Deuteronomy it really lays it out from chapter 12 to 26. Here are the obligations, Israel. Here, here's what you're to do. Here's how you're to treat your servants. Here's how you're to treat your family. Here's how you're in the work environment. Here's what you do on the Sabbath day. Here's what you don't do. And he, he lays that out for them. They would understand in the covenant context, when they agree to those stipulations, they are covenanting with the king to say, we will do this. And if we don't do it, then there's going to be 
the, the benefits or the, the cursings, the blessings or the cursings. If you keep them, here are the benefits that the king will provide for you, whether it was just provision or protection, but ultimately the ultimate blessings from God to the people. Or if you don't do them, here are the cursings. Here's the negative to not following through. And so again, you get that. Go over to, go over to Leviticus 26 and we'll, we'll, end up, we'll end up finishing there. Because everybody likes reading Leviticus, as Pastor Allen mentioned last Sunday night. It's actually, it's really interesting when you start taking it in context of covenant and understanding what God is doing and what God is requiring of the people. But I just find this passage, uh, it really does flesh out the idea of blessings and cursings. Uh, verses 1 through 13 are going to be, here are the blessings for obedience. If you don't do this, or if you, you, know, you keep my Sabbath, and you, you walk in my statutes, you know, there's going to be the blessings at verse 4, I will give you rain in due season, and your land shall increase, and you shall find fields for your, uh, for your fruit, they'll yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage. There's going to be overflows, there's going to be, there's going to be grapes abundant, there's all of this that's going to happen if you, if you keep my commands. So God is fleshing out and giving as the, the sovereign king, saying, you do this, here are the blessings. It's interesting to me, all of the curses. Is it God just tipping his hat to know, like, our sinful nature? He knows that there's going to be more curses than blessings. I don't know why, but you do look and see here from verses 14 through 46. It's, it's pretty potent stuff. He says, but if you will not hearken unto me and will not do the commands, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will do all my commands, but that, you, and, but that you break my covenant. I also will do to you, I will appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning ague, the, that shall consume the eyes, the, the, cause, the cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. You're not going to, you know, and we see that happening all the time through the book of Judges. Philistines come in and take their plunder, and they go away, and I will set my face against you. And you shall be slain before your enemies, and they shall hate you and reign over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. I would encourage you sometime, read through, read through chapter 14, or 26, verses 14 through 26, and think about Israel's cyclical uh, perspective, where they fall away from God, and the judgment that comes and then the judge that comes and delivers and they get faithful to God and watch how the blessing occurs and then the curses occur and the blessings occur. You will see that happen time and time again going right through with this covenant perspective. Israel, as a nation, if you do this, this is what will happen. If you don't do this or you do wrong, this is what's going to happen. And Leviticus lays that, lays that all out. And then what happens is the treaty... The last thing is going to be the treaty is going to be recorded and placed in both temples or throne rooms in order to be read and witnessed. Why does Moses get two tablets? Is it because ten words couldn't fit on two, two, one tablet? The, the, treaty, the treaty perspective is God is giving them two tablets, identical tablets, ten commandments on them, and where are they going to be placed? The what? The Ark of the Covenant, where the, the resting place of God, where it's going to be, who's on the throne for Israel? Who's the king? It's God. It's a theocracy. So you have, you have this for the people, one for them to read and one for, for the Ark of the Covenant. You remember Josiah, he goes through, he's going to dig up the Book of the Covenant. He's going to need to go back when, they're, when Israel's away because they need to get back to this. And Moses takes these, he's going to take them down. Now, when you look in Exodus 20, that's, that's Exodus 20. And it's, it's really interesting how a little bit is given. But if you go down to, um, fast forward a little bit down to chapter 24 of Exodus. And we'll wrap up with this. And leave the, the cliffhanger of what is, what is the covenant all about? And how does the law work for us? And all of that, you can come to my class in two weeks. And uh, if you want. Uh, but notice at the end of chapter 24. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and get, the, get him up the mountain. And Moses was in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. 
The, the, the children of Israel have already affirmed the covenant earlier in chapter 24. Verse 7, He took the book of the covenant and read it to the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And behold, the book, blood of the covenant uh, that the Lord has made concerning these. So he puts it on the altar, verse 6, and on the people, sanctifying them both and saying, You have made this agreement to hold to the covenant that has already been given. But what, what has not chronologically happened yet? Moses hasn't went up the mountain and gotten the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets, okay, and come back down. Again, that's not till, till 32. This, this really helped me in this perspective. This was, I was, I've always wrestled with how harsh God was I mean, Moses is just coming down with the law. The people have never heard about you shouldn't have a graven image and that you should have no other gods before you. They've never, this is because of my Charlton Heston understanding of the scriptures. They've they've never heard this. And now God's going to come down and slay them all and he's that mad? It's not Bible. The people have already ratified the covenant with God that we will have no other gods before you. We will not make graven images. We will not bow down and worship. We will separate you out and make you holy. And they ratify it. And now Moses at the end of 2418 is going to be up there for 40 days. And then over the next 40 days, you're going to get all these. If you just keep turning the pages and turning the pages until you get to chapter 32. Now Moses is going to be sent by God down the mountain. He's getting all that, all that law, all the covenant stuff. Now in chapter 32, he's going to come down the mountain and he's going to see this golden calf. The people in 40 days, 40 days violated the covenant of the great Redeemer, the one who brought them out, the one who's provided and protected them. And they have said, this is what we'll do 40 days later. Well, where's Moses? We don't, we don't see our mediator anymore. Maybe God doesn't care about us. Maybe. And they begin to go and drift into their ways. And we can look at Israel and say, wow, what a bad batch. Anybody else ever feel like Israel? How quickly we walk away when we don't feel like our mediator is mediating for us. God, are you aware? Lord, you know, I could use some help. It's just interesting to me. And so I'd encourage you, go back through the book of Exodus. Just follow, follow the story Read it with new eyes. Read it in light of God is making this covenant with his people. And how is he, how is he fleshing that out? Thank you.